James chapter 2, it's towards the back of the Bible. One of the last books. And let's pray before we uh, dive into it this morning. God, we do ask that you open our eyes this morning, illuminate us, uh, bring meaning to this text. Uh, we pray that your uh, word this morning will become powerful as your Holy Spirit moves in our hearts, opens our eyes, and convicts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we all pray. Amen. Uh, so we live in an age of scandals, right? We love scandals. The tabloids, the news, um, politicians that are accused of having extramarital affairs. We love that kind of stuff, don't we? Uh, accused of... Um, immorality and not being the morally upright person that we thought the politician might be or religious leaders accused of immorality or child abuse or religious leaders confessing to acquiring prostitutes and and completely just falling um, and then when we see this kind of stuff, our political leaders, our church leaders, religious leaders, or maybe your own parents, I don't know, who pr are proven in some ways to be false. Like we thought they were this, and then we just find that they're not, and it's disappointing. And we find that they're liars. We find that they're cheaters. Uh, we then begin to question everyone even ourselves. Is there anyone who is legit? Is there anyone that we can trust? Is there anyone that's truly authentic? Is there any, let's talk about Christians. Are there any people of faith? Are there any Christians who are really authentic, who really get it? Um, are uh, Christians less likely to have marriages that end in divorce than their secular counterpart? So are Christians quote-unquote Christians, people that claim to be Christians, are they less likely um, to end up in affairs or to have children that grow up believing that uh, their parents love them? Are Christians more likely to have that than their secular counterparts? And I think if you're like me, there's sort of this eerie feeling, and I don't have statistics right now to back this up, but there's this like eerie feeling that tells us, I don't think there's any difference between those that claim to be Christians and then those that claim to not believe in God at all, let's say. Um, are Christians less likely to get locked up? Or are Christians or CEOs who claim to be Christians less likely to take advantage of those underneath them? And I, I think there's, again, like this eerie feeling that, that, that there's no difference. That there are just as many people who claim to be Christians who are just as evil, if you would, as anyone. And then we look around our streets and our city and our, our country and we start asking people sort of what their faith is and what we find is that most thugs, whether they're on the city streets or whether, whether they're on Wall Street or wherever they're at in their thug life, claim to be Christians. And then we wonder like, is there any difference? So what's the point? of being a Christian. And the question then that we start to ask is what is a Christian? Who is a Christian? 
Is it simply in the way that we believe, sort of the, the things that we ascribe to? Yes, I can check all those boxes, so therefore I'm a Christian. Does belief alone make us right with God? Is belief all by itself sufficient? So we can be whoever we want to be and we can live whatever kind of life we can live, but as long as we can check these three boxes, I believe this, then we're good to go. Is that sufficient? These are the questions that James addresses in the last half of this chapter, chapter 1 of James, which Paul read this morning, and then into chapter 2. So that's where we're going to go this morning. It's going to be some heavy stuff. Like James is completely heavy, period. All right? So, if you are ready to dive in with me, let's dive in. What is authentic faith? James chapter 1, verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So this whole, this whole bit that I just said, lest it come across like a, uh, a useless rant of the miserable state of American Christianity, which it's not intended to be, there are these key questions that we have to ask as American Christians, as people that are, are part of a church gathering every week. These key questions that we have to ask as to what is authentic faith? So James starts this out, verse 22, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Don't just hear the word, don't just check the box, but be doers of the word. Verse 23, for anyone is a hearer of the word, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in, in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer uh, uh, who, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. For if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but, he, uh, but deceives his heart, that this person's religious is worth, religion is worthless. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I was teaching this earlier this week to my daughter, and as I read through this passage, she literally laughed out loud as she heard James' example of what this kind of religious person is like. Somebody who looks in the mirror and then turns, turns away, walks away, and forgets what he looks like. It's laughable, right? Laugh. Somebody. <laughs> laugh loud. Thank you. Thank you. Come on. Laugh. <laughs> that wasn't a laugh. Um, it's laughable. Uh, we don't laugh at it because we're, mainly, we're pretty familiar with this idea. But just as laughable is what he's getting at. This person who hears the word of God preached, this person who sits under the sacred and invaluable proclamation of God's very own word, these are God's ideas which have been given to us through the work of his servants. And we have them and we're reading from them. I mean, do we realize how invaluable these pages are, these words? 
and we can listen to it, we can hear the word preached, and then it doesn't do anything in our life. It doesn't change us at all. That is just as laughable as a man who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. It's stupid. And actually, James calls it, he calls it worthless religion. I would call it stupid religion. It's stupid religion. It's a waste of your time to sit. I mean, you guys could be in bed this morning. Why did you come? Right? It's a waste of your time to come and to sing songs and, and the majority of the lyrics are straight out of the scriptures and to hear uh, and to, to pray together and then to hear the scriptures sort of expounded and talked about and to not let it do anything in our lives. It's a waste of time. It's stupid. It's stupid religion. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who I think is probably one of the greatest preachers that ever, ever graced this planet, at least in America. At 25 years old, he um, took the pulpit of a guy named Solomon Stoddard, who was his grandfather. And Stoddard was a pastor in this church for uh, 59 years. And Stoddard had just passed away and... And uh, Jonathan Edwards, was, as a 25-year-old, was given the pulpit. And now he's going to be preaching to these people that Stoddard has been preaching to for years and years, for 59 years. And so Jonathan Edwards looks out at the congregation. And this is, I want to read you what he said to the congregation after Stoddard's death. He said, for those of you that are left, meaning those of you that are still around, you haven't died, all right? So Stoddard's gone, you're still here. For those of you that are, that are left, especially those of you who have lived unconverted a long while under his ministry, woe to them that go to hell out of Northampton and that lived under Mr. Stoddard's ministry. The many powerful awakening sermons that you have heard won't be forgotten. They'll all be remembered and you'll hear them rehearsed over and over again. They will, uh, though, though you were so quiet under them when you heard them, yet you'll hear them again and you will not be so quiet. They'll be thunder to you. Every word will pierce your heart and through, through and through with torments. Who is Edwards referring to? He's referring to these people who for 59 years have been sitting under Stoddard's ministry and they've been looking in the mirror and they're walking away forgetting what, they're look, what they look like. These are people who are, what, what he's saying is, you've been under like this really great teaching of the word. Woe to you, for, for those of you who don't get it. For those of you who are just, you're, you're, you're hearing it and you're doing nothing about it. It's changing nothing in your life. Woe to you. That's ridiculous. That is stupid. For, you've wasted 59 years of Sunday mornings. 52, weeks, 52 Sundays a year, right? Times 59 is how many Sundays, mathematicians? That's a lot of time that you've wasted sitting under, under uh, the word. Because it's done nothing. Sleep would have been better for you. And then James goes deeper in this in the next chapter. So look, turn over to chapter 2 with me. <clears throat> Verse 18. He says this. Someone will say this. Alright, listen. Someone will say this. You have faith and I have works. And then James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You believe that there is a God. Good. You do well. You believe that God is one. There is one God. There are not many gods, but there is one God, and he is the creator God that we see in the Bible. 
That's good. That's like really good. You should believe that. Um, you believe that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose again. Good. You believe that. Good. And then he throws down the gauntlet and he says, even the demons believe that. So like, good job. You can check all the boxes. I'm glad you believe these things. They're important things to believe. And they're the same things that the demons believe. So basically, you and the demons could sit down for a cup of coffee and, pretty and have a conversation and pretty much agree on just about everything. You guys would be friends. You'd get along well because you believe the same stuff. Like, how is your faith, how is your belief system any different than that of the demons? And then look at verse uh, 20. He goes on to sort of explain this in a little deeper way. Do you not want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out uh, by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, James is not saying that we are saved by our works. He's not saying that you can go out and just do nice things and that makes you in some way right with God. The justifying works that James is, is, uh, is talking about here is not the thing that makes you right with God. And I would agree with uh, Augustine on this, who said, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham then was justified by faith. Paul and James do not contradict each other. So Augustine is saying, Paul argues that we are justified by faith, and it seems by this that James is arguing something different, that we're justified by works. Augustine says they're not, they're not contradicting each other. Paul and James aren't opposed to each other. However, good works follow and are part of your faith and, and justification. They go hand in hand. They're one and the same. What James is exploring as he's playing with these words and he's, he's going there, what he's exploring is this question, what is authentic faith? What is real faith? Is it just in our belief system? Or is there something more to authentic faith than just checking off the I believe boxes? There, let me put it this way. Suppose there is a uh, pastor who, a preacher who has very eloquent words. All right, so not me. I mean, he's eloquent. He doesn't stumble over his words. And he's persuasive. And people listen to him and they get his ideas. And, and, and there's people that are like getting on board and they're growing and their lives are being changed. And then you go and, and uh, um, you're invited to his home for an extended stay or something. And you observe the way he treats his wife. And you see that he, he is very abusive in the way that he speaks to her and, and is... Uh, quick to get angry and and then he even hits his wife and then that Sunday you're sitting there in the service and you're hearing him preach as eloquent as he ever has been and it doesn't sound the same to you anymore does it 
Why? It's because you've just seen that he's a fraud. You've just seen that, that his actions are not lining up with what he believes or what he's saying he believes or what he wants you to believe. He's a fraud. See, faith is so much more than just checking the boxes and believing. For example, I could believe this chair can hold me up, right? I could look at it and I could say, I believe 100% that that chair holds me up. Good. But faith is this. Faith is this, right? That's faith. So my belief then caused me to sit down in the chair. It's throwing my weight. My, I mean, and that is, that's an act of faith, right? I mean, if the chair didn't, wouldn't hold me up, then I would have just hurt myself, right? And we've probably all experienced that before. So we have faith every day as you sit down in your chairs. But if we just say, well, I believe that it's going to hold me up, but we never are willing to sit down, then it's like, come on. You don't believe it. There's nothing there. It's fake. Real faith then always turns into action. Real faith always, it, it's, it, there's belief, and that belief always moves into action. Abraham's faith was uh, seen and acted out in his acceptance of the call of his God to sacrifice Isaac. He took his son and is literally walking up this, this hill and he's going to sacrifice his, his son. His faith was seen in his actions, in what he did. If he would have believed that God is God, yet he didn't f obey God and didn't follow God, would he have believed that God is sovereign and wants the best? No. So he has no clue. It goes against everything he probably felt everything he, he believes socially, everything we would believe, yet, yet he still put his faith into God and was still about to go through with what God told him to do. Now we know by God's grace that God didn't want him to kill his son and he provided a ram. And yet, even still, Abraham's faith was seen in his actions. Same with Rahab the harlot, right? The prostitute. We talked about her a couple weeks ago. Uh, it, her faith was seen in what she did. The spies came. And her faith was, she, her sitting down in the chair was hiding the spies. It was sending the spies on a different direction. The, James, as he, as he goes on here, he says, for, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead. So if you take the spirit out of your body, your body's, your body's dead. Um, so as uh, faith apart from works is also dead. And then James gives two examples of this. So look at the beginning of chapter 2. And I want you to see the two examples that James gives. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one 
who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit over here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, you have not then, or have you not then, made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which, which he has promised to those who love, love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Don't show favoritism. Don't show any favoritism. We, we are, were reminded last week, and we went through James 1, and we talked about uh, how, how the rich man uh, has a special burden that's placed upon him, and we know that James um, is not anti-rich people, no more than he's pro-poor people. But we know that there is a special burden placed on the rich man who has resources and things that are passing, and the question is, is, how do you use your resources and things that are passing? And the godly rich man will find joy, we talked about this last week, will find joy in the fact that his things are passing. Because at the end of those things, all there is is Jesus Christ. As will the poor find joy in their poverty because they know that all there is is Jesus Christ and they have the inheritance of Christ, the Son. And then here James goes into that and he's like, and, and this is common in the ancient world as, as it is common today, isn't it? As uh, somebody who's wealthy or has honor or influence or power walks in. In the ancient world, they would specifically sit them in a place of honor. And those who were poor, who were seen as not, not wealthy or uh, they have no influence, whatever, they were placed in a different, in a different section. And this is evident today just in, in just, just as many ways. Um, but maybe more subtle ways. Now, a couple generations ago, not so, subtle at all, right? I mean, are we not only one generation removed from uh, uh, seating uh, arrangements on city buses based on the pig pigmentation of your skin? Or three or four generations removed from the enslavement of African people? Because of the pigmentation of, of, of your skin? Or today, let's bring it in the, in the current terms today, we, we look around us and we see uh, uh, immigrants who are often despised and rejected and unwanted. And look, just over, we look over them. Does this not happen today? Even in subtle ways in your own life, when you throw a party, who do you have to the, who do you have over? Who do you invite to your parties? This is Jesus would ask you this question actually. Jesus asked people this question: Who do you invite to your parties? Are they people that that look like you that can pay you back? Are they people that can invite you to their parties? Are they the ones you invite over? Who do you invite to your parties? Who do you invite to your home for dinner? Uh, the, right here, this is sort of in the context of worship gatherings here in James. Within our worship gatherings, are we one? 
Are we completely one in our worship gatherings? Do, when, when anybody would, uh, walks into this room, do they get the sense that they are invited into a, a community, a, a union of oneness with Christ and with each other? When you leave this gathering and you go out to lunch somewhere, although today you're going to stick around here for lunch, but you go out to lunch somewhere, who do you, who do you invite with you? Somebody that, somebody that can pay for their own meal? Or somebody that, that you know will pick up your own tab? Right? Like how do we make the decisions we make, the relational decisions we make? Do we show partiality and favoritism in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we worship? in the way that we come together as a church, as community. If a man walked in here who was clearly homeless for months and, and he carries with him the, the, the stench of not taking a bath for a month and he fills up the room with this stench, would you sit by him? And then would you invite him to your home for lunch after the gathering? And would you allow him to use your shower and would you give him your wardrobe? These are the kind of questions that James is asking us. I mean, are we legit? Are we really followers of Jesus Christ or are we, are we frauds? And James actually takes it there. He says, suppose that man now were to come to you and he's naked and he's hungry as, as chapter 2 goes on. Look at uh, verse... 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and, and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone comes to you, and this, this, this same person maybe comes to you, and he's He's naked. Poorly clothed, whatever that might mean in our cultural context today, it can mean a number of different things. He's hungry, and we say, "Oh, I serve the God that takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, and He will take care of you, my brother. Go in peace. God will God will fill you. God will clothe you. I'll I'll be praying for you. That's tough. You're in a tough situation. I'll pray for you." Right? And then we send them on their merry way, right? What good is that? James says. It's it's stupid, it's stupid religion. And as a matter of fact, I think James is getting at or what James is getting at is that this man is not your brother because you are not part of the family. You you look like you're part of the family, but you're a fraud. The reason you don't want to love and share and care is because he's not your brother. Now he's probably part of the family. Very well could be. It's you that are on the outside. You're the one that's not part of the family. But you say, well, wait a second, I believe. I've got my belief system right. I believe that uh, Jesus came to this earth and Jesus died for my sins and rose again. I believe these things. I think James would look at you and say, brother, the demons believe that. The demons, the demons watched it happen. They believe it too. So how are you any different? How is your faith 
any different than that of the demons. If, um, if I had a quarter with me, uh, which I don't because I'm broke, right? Because of the parking meters in Baltimore. This is part of my, here we go. It's, coming, it's all coming to me now. Parking in Baltimore, it's pretty expensive, isn't it? I swear it goes up every time I have to pay a meter. What is it, like $15 for 15 minutes downtown right now? Something like that? Um, let's say we have a brilliant idea to take a quarter. All right, we've got to make it stretch farther now because it's getting more and more expensive. So we take the quarter and we, we cut it right down the middle. We've got heads on one side and tails on the other. And we say, okay, I'm going to cut my quarter down the middle. Now I have two quarters. And then we pay the meter with the heads and we keep the tails in our pocket. Right? Will that work? Of course not. Why? It's because you just created a counterfeit quarter. It's no longer, it, the one side, it looks like a quarter. It really does. If you look at the one side, it really looks like a quarter. But we know and the, uh, uh, the people of, the, of Baltimore, when they take a look at this quarter and uh, empty out the meter machine, will know that that is not a quarter. It's, it's, it's not. It's counterfeit. As it is with our faith. When we take our faith and we split it down the middle, we've got heads on one side, tails on the other. We've got belief on one side and action on the other. We split it down the middle. It's no longer genuine faith. It's no longer, as James calls it, pure religion. It's counterfeit. It looks Depending on the angle you look at it, it looks very real. But as you, as you really take a look, you find quickly that it's counterfeit. And we can go, we can talk about this the other direction as well. So if we split it down the middle and we say, belief is not important, um, I'm just about action. I just want people to act right. So I don't tell people about beliefs, I just want to get them to act right. Well, you're still going to create a counterfeit counterfeit faith. And that's what Paul gets at a lot in his, in his letters. What James is getting at is the reverse. James is saying if you, take, if you have belief, good. But if you take away the action side, it's counterfeit. It's fake. There's nothing there. It's worthless. It's stupid religion. Uh, stupid religion is um, going to church every Sunday and sitting in the service and hearing me ramble on and on about biblical texts and allowing it to do nothing in your life. To, to walk out and absolutely unchanged. Nothing is different about your life than anyone else. Nothing's different about your life than it, than it was uh, before you heard the word explained. That's stupid religion. Pure religion, on the other hand, hears the word believes the word, and then does it. it. It makes sense. We do it. If we believe it, then we do it. If we don't do it, then we don't believe it. Stupid religion believes that simply thinking right makes them right. Simply thinking right, then I'm, I'm good to go. Pure religion sees belief and action as intertwined and inseparable. A union. Which, if you try to split down the middle, if you try to separate, are no longer authentic and real. It, be, it creates something that's perverted 
and it, it creates a counterfeit kind of faith. Uh, stupid religion allows you to uh, walk to church. And for those of you who walked here this morning and you saw maybe tens or twenties of people, or for those of you who drove here this morning, you may have seen hundreds of people who are uh, living in this world, broken, hurting, and confused, and they're on their way out of this world with no full, clear understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Stupid religion allows you to, on your way to gather with the church, interact with these people, honk your horn at them, flick them off because they cut you off, right? Have you ever seen a pastor do that before? Um, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> and, uh, and it allows you to, to, to do that and care zero about who they are, what their relationship is with Christ, because you're good to go, because you've got it. You've got it figured out. So you can pass everyone by. Now, pure religion, on the other hand, will go to all costs to, to make the gospel known um, in, in all of the city and all of the world. Pure religion sees your very life as on mission. And that mission is the same mission we all have, and that is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Pure religion gets that. And part of our action is making disciples of Jesus Christ. And we can't just ignore. We can't just walk by people and not, and not care. Simply because we have it all together. Stupid religion uh, basks in the freedom and privilege that is America and ignores the plight of the poorest of the poor all around the world who are struggling to live on one dollar a day. We don't want to think about it. We can have our Jesus and we can have our lifestyle. That's stupid religion. Pure religion, on the other hand, believes that to whom much is given, much is required. And you will sacrifice. You will sacrifice having nice things. You will sacrifice even uh, buying a bunch of material gifts this Christmas for a bunch of people so that you, you can give. So that you can, you can love the world in a different way. We, we cannot ignore. Pure, pure religion redefines neighbor. Who is our neighbor? Our neighbor no longer is the people just in our community. Our neighbor is the people that we see on the internet and the people that we see on the news, the people we hear about. When our eyes are open to suffering in the world, we have a new neighbor now. They're now our neighbor. And we are to love. We are to care for our neighbor as we would care for ourselves. That's huge. And that's pure religion. Uh, stupid religion is knowledgeable of theology and doctrine, and they're very thankful for the fact that they, gr they grew up with, with uh, a good understanding of biblical truths. However, they won't share it with anyone. They're good to go. They've got their belief system figured out in the head, and they won't share it with anyone. Pure religion, on the other hand, um, again, believes to whom much is given, much is required, and they will make it their life's mission to raise up disciples. And what we've been given uh, with our upbringing or uh, with our parents dragging us to church on Sundays and the, the, some of the, the timeless truths that we've come to understand about Jesus Christ, we will make it our goal to transfer that information, that knowledge, to others 
who can then begin this authentic faith and make disciples. Stupid religion, one, one more, <laughs> is, is um, uh, is again thankful for the fact that we live in a world and in a society that allows us to be Christians or to have faith or to gather the way we do and um, ignores the fact that there are Christians all over the world who are put to death for their very faith. There are churches just like this that are meeting illegally and they still, for some reason, continue to meet. They still continue to gather and they put their lives in danger every time they do so. Um, stupid religion just ignores that. Uh, pure religion knows that um, we are often the hands and feet to our very own prayer requests. You see, so it's not enough to say, man, there is a lot of pain in this world. There are millions of people who don't know Christ. There are entire continents of people where Christ, people are hostile towards towards uh, Jesus' people. There are hundreds of thousands of people who have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to just pray. We can say, let's, let's, let's pray for them. Good, and we should. But we must also realize that we are often the hands and feet, the answer to our very own prayer requests, that God may be calling you to step up, to give in a different way, to actually move to, to a, a new land and to share the gospel with all of the world. What would it look like for you to be transformed in this way? What would it look like for you to uh, walk away from stupid religion and embrace something that's real, something that's pure, authentic faith? Um, would you spend your money differently? Would you give in a different way? Would you spend your time differently? Would you stop wasting your life? Would you get up off the couch and go out and do something and, and, and uh, be the light in this world? It could be that, uh, that you are newer with us or you're coming to a newer understanding of the faith. You're just sort of searching things out. Um... For you, I hope that you sort of hear our passion for Jesus, for what it means to have life, for what it means to have faith, our, our passion for you, to understand why someone invited you to come here and to understand why we rent out this rec center on a weekly basis to come and to be under the word. Because it means that it, 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 it changes our life. It completely transforms us. There, there is another who um, gave a very living example of this kind of authentic faith. And it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that he, in full knowledge of what was before him, being fully divine and fully human, he looked to the Father and Jesus, Jesus prayed, Father, if it is possible... 
to have this cup or to have this action done in a different way, it's very much, it's very heavy to bear. If it's possible to have this cup removed from me, then let it be. And the seeming response was not possible. And Jesus then, for us, on our behalf, showed us what it means to have this kind of authentic, real action as he then followed the Father's will to the cross. And Jesus' mission was, was you, the redemption of humanity. Jesus' mission was to die on your behalf, in your stead, for you. It's uh, possible that some in this room have been, uh, for years possibly, fooling others and maybe even fooling yourself with a counterfeit kind of faith. Something that looks very real, but you know that you have never allowed God to sit on his, on his throne where he should sit in your life. And you know that as you've been attempting your entire life to be God, to be your own God, it's tiring. It's not working out very well for you. And it's time to repent and it's time to believe and it's time to have authentic faith and sit down in that chair. And by your fruit, we will know you. Right? 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 All right, here we go. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this very uh, difficult yet powerful letter of uh, James that we have from James. Um, we believe and trust is your very word to us this morning as your spirit takes these words and moves in our hearts and convicts us. I do ask that our faith is as authentic and real as uh, James is getting at here in, in these, these words in this chapter. That we aren't people or a church full of stupid religion where we, where we either believe things and we act on nothing or we do a lot of action but there's no belief behind it. God, we, we want to be the entire quarter. We want to be the whole thing. We want to be legit. We want to be real. We want to be authentic followers of Jesus Christ who uh, we see um, an example from his own life as he, as he uh, of course, believed right and his belief led him to action. And uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for loving us, for inviting us to be part of this family. And God, doing us the work that we cannot do on our own. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.